Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and joining me for our regular weekly roundup is John Bennett from Editor-at-Large from uh, CQ Roll Call and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And a lot to talk about this week. We're going to talk a little bit about Trump uh, leaking that he may be arrested come Tuesday. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Mar-a-Lago subpoenas, uh, his rants and other emails, bringing back Glass-Steagall, the bite him, shoot him up on the road, and uh, bank bailouts and regulations. Oh, it's so much fun, and we can't forget March Madness. So stick around. There's a lot to talk about. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, uh, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And as we begin today, uh, it is Sunday. Coming up on Tuesday, Donald Trump believes he's going to be indicted and has warned his people to get out and protest. Uh, protesting is one thing, taking back the country, threatening a riot, an additional riot is another. He also kind of hinted around at that on true social media. But uh, already today, we've heard that there will be a secret witness before the Manhattan DA come Monday, and uh, a lot of speculation about who that is. I can confirm Michael Cohen says he's not it. Uh, people that are, uh, know Stormy Daniels say she's not it. Uh, they've already said it, Ed and Alan Weiselberg, the uh, attorney, and I've heard that uh, we had thought it might be David Pecker, but David Pecker has uh, already apparently testified. Maybe he'll be called back. Who made who, who who's left and what makes sense? And will Donald Trump be indicted? That's the question of the day. And I guess I'm going to start with uh, uh, Michael. I, I it's it's problematic. I still don't. And you and I and, and uh, John have talked about this as recently as last week about the problematic um, prosecution of Donald Trump for anything regarding this particular thing. And what we're talking about is this payoff to Stormy Daniels and setting up a bank account to do it. Um, it was Cohen who indeed paid him off and and paid her off and then uh, just asked to be paid back. They set up a company to do it. And we still don't know exactly what would be illegal about doing all of that. Maybe you can enlighten us a little. Right. So stepping back, it's close to the election in 2016. 
Stormy Daniels is alleging that she had a sexual relationship with candidate Trump. Essentially, she says, I won't talk about this if you pay me money. Trump calls that uh, some sort of uh, shakedown, that he was the victim of the shakedown. But regardless, uh, an agreement is struck by which she is going to be paid money to remain silent. Michael Cohen, who is then attorney for Trump, his self-described himself as a fixer, fixer. Yeah. Um, pays Stormy Daniels $150,000. He takes out a, a, a loan, I think a, a mortgage, home mortgage or something, um, pays her $150,000, and she remains silent. Cohen then says to the Trump people, fine, now pay me back. And they do pay him back uh, in, uh, in increments, uh, 10 or 11 increments, which are recorded on the business records of the Trump uh, company as legal fees for Michael Cohen, which they certainly were not. And the question is, does that amount to a crime? Now, first, is it a crime to pay somebody who's threatening um, to say something bad about you money to hush them up? No, that is not a crime. And we've seen that with other uh, politicians. Is it a crime to incorrectly reflect the reimbursement of that fund on your business records? Yes. In New York, that is a misdemeanor. Normally, you think of business records misrepresentations related to public companies so that they don't mislead the public uh, who may be uh, stockholders in that company. Trump's organization is a private company, so it's a little bit less on point to what business records are uh, intended to protect against. It can become a felony if the payment was made in furtherance of an additional crime. We don't know what that additional crime is. The speculation is that it may involve some sort of federal or state election uh, crime. Remember, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to and spent time in jail in part because of illegal campaign contributions that he made to the Trump campaign. I think the Stormy Daniels payment being one of those things. Um, so it's possible that this misdemeanor can be turned into a felony because it was a business record misrepresentation in furtherance of the crime of election um, by law violations. I think that it's uh, a weak, a weak case. I think there are defenses to it, particularly if Alan Weisselberg will testify on behalf of Trump that uh, what he thought he did was it was legal and or what he thought he did was undertaken by him and him alone and not at the direction of of Trump. Right. And so if Weisselberg may take the, the fall for, for Trump on this by saying Trump didn't know anything about it, it was all Cohen and me. Um, and so... It, the surprise witness that is meaningful in this case would be Weisselberg. But Weisselberg has steadily, steadfastly 
refused against to testify against Trump. He's testified against the Trump organization in an earlier case, but not against Trump. And he seems to be holding firm that he's not going to do that. He's loyal to Trump and, you know, maybe loyalty, loyalty is a good thing, but uh, it will certainly be hurtful to a prosecution in this case. So, Brian, it's a long answer to say it's potentially a misdemeanor. It is potentially a felony. I think their case is weak without Weisselberg. I don't think you can predicate a case on Cohen alone, having pleaded guilty essentially to the crimes that are involved in this particular case. And I would be somewhat disappointed if Bragg decided to go forward, especially if his is the first case to go forward criminally against the former president, as I think there are stronger cases. You asked me the question based on a reader, uh, a listener's comment, what I think is the strongest case. And I said that I think the Mar-a-Lago obstruction of justice case is a is a strong case. Uh, they need a few more witnesses. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> I think that's a strong case. <laughs> yeah. And I think that potentially a conspiracy to interfere with the orderly prosecution, uh, the, the orderly um, transfer of power is, is, is a case, but this is the weakest of them. And I'd be surprised and disappointed in the prosecutor if he went forward with this case, and especially if he went forward with this case first, because it'll take it'll take the oxygen out of the air uh, for Georgia if they're the ones who's next up on the um, roster of possible prosecutions. And John, I we've uh, in the press have typically gone nuts with anything that has to do with Donald. And uh, it, it no no uh, no exclusion this week. We've this has really gone into the stratosphere, has it not? I, I lost you there, brother. You're nope, on. nope. I can't hear you. Not a word. <laughs> Sorry. There you uh, go. I was reading Trump's Truth Social where. He is uh, saying that Alvin Bragg, the district attorney that Michael's been uh, discussing, uh, when he came and assumed his office, remember, and Trump is right about this, uh, this case, this case went away. They they were focusing instead on Trump uh, allegedly overvaluing his assets over the years. Um, I believe that would, you know, from what I've read and folks like Michael that I've talked to and listened to about this. That seems to be uh, an easier case to to prove and, and possibly get a conviction or convictions. So Trump is going after uh, Bragg, saying that this is politically motivated, and that noting that Bragg himself okayed, you know, focusing on on other things and closing this part of the case. So we're going to hear a lot of that. Uh, I would suspect uh, that uh, we'll hear a defense uh, from Trump if, if this does go to trial that. Um, Kind of what Michael, I'll I'll build on what Michael was saying, and I I think the defense can be summed up this way. Um, I paid the porn star to not say anything because I didn't want my wife to find out. That's not a crime. And those guys chose to hide it on the books, and I didn't know anything about it. And one of them's are and and one of them's already been punished for it. So both of them. so, Your Honor, how about you just throw this thing out and let's all move on with our lives? I could see that happening too. I his, but to the point, his uh, 
his minions have circled the tent and saying, hey, if they can come after Donald Trump, they can come after you. Right. And, and, that's, well, that's, and to me, that's a, a very odd way of saying no one is above the law. <laughs> yeah, obviously they can come after us, but it's not it's never been so obvious that you could go after a a sitting or a former president. And the the thing that bothers me most about this is to Michael's point, if you're not going to bring a strong case, you're only going to strengthen Donald's resolve and the resolve of his base. And I wonder, you know, there's been talk of people with, you know, I've seen on social media, you know, that the, the, the uh, MAGA supporters are going to show, they're being encouraged to show up with rifles and they're encouraging Ron DeSantis to call out the National Guard to keep uh, Donald from being brought in. Um, it's all going to come to a head. I don't know how it comes to a head. And then there is the added, uh, Michael, one last ask for you is there has been a speculation that Donald Trump's lawyer in this particular case is compromised because he at one point in time had been asked by, um, by Stormy Daniels to represent her. Does that present a problem? Should this go to court? I wouldn't think so. It, it unless Stormy Daniels re revealed to him information that would be relevant at the trial. So for example, if Stormy Daniels calls uh, a lawyer up and says, would you represent me? And he says, or she says, no, then there's no conflict. If he says, well, I don't know, come into the office and let's talk. And she says, well, here's the deal. Here are all the facts. And he says, you know what? I'm not the, I'm not the right guy or gal for you. And then you pick up the attorney on the other side of, you pick up your representation on the other side of the case. That could be a problem, Brian. So we just don't okay. know what, what information was relayed to uh, the, the current lawyer. I want to move on now to the other thing that you uh, talked about, Michael, and that was the uh, Mar-a-Lago subpoenas that have come out this week. They're resubpoenaing uh, members of the Mar-a-Lago staff. They're bringing them on board. Uh, and, and that's led to a lot of coverage in the media as well. Start out with the media coverage, John. It What we've seen on both of these cases, um, we have been criticized over the last few years for not pressing Donald Trump hard enough. In fact, I was accosted by a guy in California earlier this week when I attended Joe Biden's speech um, uh, for the victims of Monterey Park for the mass shooting who said that all this is part of the media's problem because we just don't, we never pushed hard against Donald Trump. Are we covering this correctly? Do we, have we picked up, are we on point or are we uh, again off kilter? And there you are again. You're, <laughs> are we gonna I know what I'm doing. I've used the laptop before, I promise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure how to how to answer the question. I'm not sure how to to give the grade because we've never had to cover anything like this before. <laughs> we never had to cover a political uh, figure movement like Trump and the MAGA movement, and we've never, you know, just like there's there's no guidebook for how to get a former president to a courthouse to be indicted. Um, so the Secret Service, the NYPD, and others are going to have to write that. They're probably doing that right. They are doing that right now, reportedly. Uh, so, there, And there's also no guidebook on how to cover a former president about to be indicted. So how are we covering it? You know, the folks who are breaking the news, they get an A, I think. 
Um, there, you know, there are a lot of anonymous sources, so we don't know exactly where yes. where this is coming from. But you know, at the same time, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't blame the reporters and the editors who made the decision to publish uh, the NBC story on Friday, because you know you've got you've got two or three very reliable sources telling you something. Um, the public does have a right to know. These are public charges, of course, in a you know public court. So, right. you know, the charging documents are going to be public. How do you not go forward with an anonymous sourced story uh, about a former president for the first time about to face uh, criminal charges? So um, we'll see. There's going to be a lot of hyperventilating. Um, I will probably join in that in, in my own coverage <laughs> with this. But, you know, I don't know if we can be dramatic enough. This is history. This is this. Like I said, this is a former leader of the free world. And he didn't he didn't love that role. But that's what he was. Yeah. And, and he never gonna, grew into it. But <laughs> and, if, and if NBC's report is correct and they've been pretty good on this stuff so far, you're going to see a former president of the United States standing before a judge. You're going to see his mugshot. You're going to see his fingerprints. This is it's it's going to be incredible. So we we're going to be criticized for how we cover this. Yeah, uh, I mean, but we're but, damned if we do, if damn if we don't, right? Right, exactly. Uh, and we just have to take the hits. And you know, let's be honest. We're we're running a business here, as Tony Soprano uh, was fond of saying. This is this is this is you know we're going to do okay this week if if the the DA's office goes ahead with this. Um, and and they take Trump to New York and 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 he's indicted and fingerprinted. He could do a remote type thing, but one of the reports I read yesterday, uh, Trump would prefer to address the cameras outside the courtroom. I guess after everything goes down. So Gee, I wonder what he'll say. This is going to be vintage, made for television, Donnie. It's going to be we're going to we're going to be able to close our eyes and feel like we're back in the oval in a pool spray. <sighs> And and here we go. This is this is I've called this, you know, the Trump show. This is act four. Here we go. <laughs> this is season four. And this one, this one's different. Yeah. Okay? Season four is going to be very different. And, you know, I don't I, I, I don't know the motivations. Nobody knows the motivations behind them going ahead with a misdemeanor case. But, you know, we've wondered we've talked here. You know, how could the how could the various entities and they're all, you know, controlled and, and appointed and everything. They're all pretty much Democrats, except down in Georgia. Um, we've talked about how could they screw up the chance to politically maybe disqualify Trump or or at least, you know, not allow him to skirt legally on right. things. This feels like it could be the beginning of all that slipping through the Democrats' hands. This is what they do. They find ways. They find ways to lose in the fourth quarter. Yes, yes, the, the worse than the Washington Commanders. Um, but, <laughs> but that aside, what I what particularly I find difficult to fathom are the, the are, it's a fine line to walk for us. Mm -hmm. We have to report the facts, right? And we know that whatever we report will add to the fuel. It, it'll be fuel mm -hmm. to the fire. How do we make sure that it isn't dynamite on the fire? How do we make sure that what we do is stick strictly to the facts? Now, I know Fox News is not going to. And indeed, they'll throw dynamite, gasoline, uh, a couple of M80s, maybe some uh, kerosene 
and and uh, C4 into the, the carrots, fire. That's right. Don't forget the carrots. <laughs> so I I I understand that, but for the rest of us, as you said, this is a place we've never been before. And so as this comes down with the threats of real real threats of violence, and we've seen what happened January 6th, I think that we are entering in a very, we should be very cautious, yet very factual and very, very careful in how we report. But well, can I, can I add one thing, which is sure. what's important to remember in, in this case is that the conduct under uh, investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office was conduct undertaken by private citizen Trump. This predates his term in in office. And so just like Bill Clinton having been sued by Paula Jones for conduct that occurred before he entered the presidency, which the Supreme Court said is absolutely appropriate, here we have former private citizen, now current private citizen Trump, being held accountable for his acts as a private citizen. And yes. so I think it's important to recognize the distinction between bringing to trial of a, a, a former president for private citizen acts he is alleged to have taken versus the acts hmm. he took as a president. Because hmm. because many people- So where does Mar-a-Lago tra- figure in all that, Michael? I mean, that's, well, that's I mean, he was a private citizen. He, he, he was- but he that was on the cusp. But just to let me finish the point. Yeah. Um, so we have charged Spiro Agnew and convicted Spiro Agnew with criminal conduct before he became um, vice president. We have charged and convicted um, other politicians for private conduct before and after they became. And so I think it's it behooves the press to make sure that they distinguish between what he's on trial or what he's been in charged with, um, his status at the time uh, versus you know the what would be unprecedented of charging a president of the United States for criminal activity that he undertook while in office. So, for example, if they brought charges against him based on the obstruction of justice um, findings of the Mueller report, that would be you know completely unprecedented. This is not as unprecedented. Yes, it's the president. But as I said, we did it with Agnew and we've done it with other politicians. And I think that is- So a, now do Mar-a-Lago. So Mar-a-Lago, um, <laughs> the, the, the removal of the documents from Mar-a-Lago, the mishandling of the documents occurred while Trump was President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's the start of it. Then um, he's the, the former president who- when asked for the return of those documents, refuses and now is under. Well, he said at first he said he didn't. And, and that June memo said I've turned over everything and there's nothing left. No, I get it. Um, but what I'm what I'm trying to to the point that you're asking is, then he beha- behaves in a way that the prosecutors are inquiring of whether it is obstruction of 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 justice or in, in obstruction of their investigation. All that conduct is as a private citizen again. And so, you know, again, I think that distinguishing between private citizen and 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 president, uh, president actions while president is important. And, you know, if Mar-a-Lago turns out that they get the witnesses, they've subpoenaed, as you said, Brian, a minute ago, all of the people who had any knowledge of the 
uh, presence of and movement of those documents. The the key, I think, is the um, former military guy who's now working for Trump in a private sector role, whose name I can't pronounce or remember, um, <laughs> who has who who came who came to the uh, grand jury first and said, "I don't know what you're talking about." Right. Then they showed then they showed him surveillance tape of him moving the boxes. They said, "Oh, oh, oh! You mean those boxes?" Yeah. Right. Hari, Hari Krishna. Right. Then he he and then he he had his his present recollection refreshed, as lawyers would would say. Um, oh, so they, oh, oh, that they, body. Sorry, yeah. Lieutenant Colombo. I didn't know what you were talking about. Right. So, that, but didn't that that always seemed to me like a a stronger case. It's pretty simple, cut and dried. It seems. Um, well, it everything, Brian, depends on what knowledge you can put in the hands of Trump. So, for example, if Trump takes these documents um, intentionally or unintentionally and brings them to Mar-a-Lago thinking that he has a possessory right to them, that they're his private documents. And the government calls up and says, no, 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 you're mistaken. Um, we want those documents back. He said, oh, my, I didn't realize I was mistaken. And he calls up his subordinates and says, get them what they need. You know, this is, you know, something I don't want to have to deal with. And all of the subordinates go about trying to do that, but they do it in a way that is less than full and appears to have been um, obstructionist. How do you tie that back to Trump? Remember, Trump, as we have always said, famously doesn't send emails, is, you know, uh, no fingerprints, of his left on, you know, the, the crime scene type of person. And so right. the question is, how do you tie it back to, to him? And that becomes, you know, the issue in Mar-a-Lago that becomes the issue in, in New York. That is the issue in yep. January 6th. What can they prove about what he uh, knew and what he did in, with respect to that knowledge? That's, that's always the, the, the hard part. And well, and, and, we'll but and they can in make it in any case. Nothing, the, but nothing, Brian, is nothing is slam dunk. Yeah, I, none of these with cases. Donald Trump, not, yes. not with Trump. Not yeah, with Trump. Nothing is, slam is an dunk. easy case to break. But I would think that the letter, all right, so if he had just given everything back, oh, I understand you forgot some of this. Okay, they, the, um, the, the federal government has always been with former presidents quite um, elastic in how they apply you know, this standard, it's like, okay, I understand you're a busy guy. Send me what you got when you got something else, send me, but the denial, I, I doesn't that provide, you know, saying, all right, look on June, we've checked it. We've got nothing else. No, go away. We don't have anything. Right. And the question is, is on who is that? And so one of the subpoenas that went out there is to attorney Corcoran, Corcoran yes. uh, refused to testify uh, and asserted his attorney-client privilege rights on behalf of um, Trump. The court recently said, no, the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege, which says there is an attorney-client privilege that cannot be breached unless those communications are in furtherance of a crime, in which case the attorney-client privilege fails because of the greater need to deal with the, the, the crime that was under conversation. 
And they mm. said in this case, the court said in this case, that that crime fraud exception applies, which implies that the court believes, based on the presentation of evidence by the DOJ, that the communications between Corcoran and Trump involved a crime. So if they can get Corcoran to be truthful and say what the nature of those conversations were, that may put knowledge in Trump provable in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. But just like with January 6th, they need Mark Meadows to be able to tie Trump to the information. And and so if they if they get him and he's truthful and he puts (laughs) knowledge in 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 Trump's uh, provable mind, then these cases become uh, more easily. Nothing is easy, but more easily proven than without these guys. So that's where we are. Everything is. Can you prove knowledge? Of, right. of Trump. And as I said, in the Bragg, uh, New York case, I think Weisselberg is required for that. In yeah, the yeah. January 6th case, I think Meadows is required uh, for that. In Mar-a-Lago, I think um, that this guy whose name I'm not remembering, who moved the boxes, yeah. and Corcoran are required uh, for that. If they get him, these cases are, are, are better. If they don't have them, and in Georgia, not as easily proved. And in, in Georgia, Georgia, I don't know. It, there's no real transparency there. I, I personally don't think that the phone calls themselves um, are a very prosecutable, easily prosecuted case to a jury in in Georgia, even if it is in Fulton County, because Fulton County is a divided county. You've got right. uh, Raphael Warnock winning that county in in his senatorial election, but you had 30, 40% of the people who voted for Trump. And so 30, 40% of those people are going to be on the jury. Um, So you got to convince those people, because you have to have a unanimous jury, that these phone calls were not legitimate phone calls made by uh, by Trump, who sincerely believed that this election uh, was... uh, fraudulent in Georgia and that all you're yes, trying there to are do enough is... strikes in the in the uh in the prosecutors uh uh fold there to enable him to stack the jury with people who do not believe Donald Trump you're correct correct poor dear won't help <laughs> right. so I mean so again the question is what do they have beyond the the, the phone calls because again I think those phone calls when you cherry pick so the worst of them worst of the parts of them, uh, are are not helpful to Trump, but I don't think in their full context uh, they make a uh, prosecutable a, a case that you can convict on. I mean, anyway, sorry, I'm filibustering. That's all right, John. You got the next and, word. And there. John is finally off mute, so let let yeah. John. You're, maybe you're not I mean, on mute, are you? <laughs> I, maybe the listeners would prefer if I was on. No, mute. hell no. Uh, <laughs> Let me just throw out an idea here about this last witness, mystery witness uh, in New York. Could it be someone from the 2016 Trump campaign? And then if they were involved in conversations about we got to pay this lady off, we got to keep her quiet, we got to we got to get this thing over to the Inquirer, they'll capture, they'll kill it. And let's get to the just get across the finish line of the election. If if that kind of coordination was there then they might be able to bump this thing up to a felony. It might be more easily, well, maybe not easily provable, but more easily argued if they have that connection straight into and the campaign. And who might that be, John? 
Well, uh, there's a gentleman named Paul Manafort. You might remember him. <laughs> uh, David Bosi took over. Uh, he took over the campaign. Steve Bannon was around. Um, yeah, he's not going to testify. Right. So, but there are folks, uh, there are folks in the campaign who may be looking at this and saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to have this on my record, even if it's just a misdemeanor, you know, if, if the prosecutors are leaning on them somehow, uh, maybe they've decided it's, it's, it's in their best interest to uh, testify against, against the boss. And with that wonderful thought, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, well, let's talk of presidential politics from the past. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's uh, Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me again from uh, CQ Roll Call is uh, Editor-at-Large John Bennett and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And uh, Michael, you you helped, as we were talking about before the case, you investigated a long time ago another one of my favorite criminals that became president, Ronald Reagan. And in his attempt to uh, the run-up, the, the rumor always was, and it was reported widely uh, after the fact that Ronald Reagan had reached out some way to uh, Iran and convinced them to wait and turn over the the hostages after he became president. And now this week, it seems like there is some information that would actually <laughs> would actually confirm that. You want to talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So Jimmy Carter is president. The American hostages are taken uh, by the Ayatollah Khomeini after he uh, takes over uh, as the, the supreme leader from the uh, civilian government uh, headed by Bani Saad. Carter goes into a, a Rose Garden lockdown. I'm not going to do anything until I get those hostages out. The Reagan campaign, in its internal polling, determines that the only way Carter is going to beat them is to get these hostages out. If he can get them out in October, a so-called October surprise, then Carter, because of the goodwill of getting them out, will uh, be able to uh, potentially beat Reagan. Without that, the Reagan people are convinced Reagan is going to win. So the theory- and a reminder there, for those who don't remember, they staged an attempt to free the hostages and couldn't find five helicopters in the U.S. military that could work. And in fact, there was a, a, a helicopter went down in the desert. It led to a lot of uh, it led to a large uh, surge of spending on uh, the Department of Defense afterwards. But it also led to Ronald Reagan becoming president. Go ahead from there. All right. So the hostages are in Iran. You're right to say that Carter 
they were all in one place. And and uh, Carter um, undertakes this secret mission. He's going to fly these helicopters in at low altitude. Uh, they hit a sandstorm, unfortunately, and they're unable to uh, achieve their mission's goals. Afterwards, the hostages are um, displaced around different locations, and getting them out would be an impossibility. Reagan, though, is still concerned about the possibility of an October surprise. And the theory is, and it's promoted by a, um, an NSC analyst, a re reputable guy named Gary Sick, who wrote a book saying, some years later, saying, I saw cable traffic that reflects that Bill Casey, head of the uh, uh, Reagan uh, campaign, was in fact in touch with the Iranians about not releasing these hostages until Reagan won. And in fact, what, you know, sort of, is a point of uh, reference is that the hostages were released like 20 minutes after Reagan is sworn right. in as president. In fact, I think the first words out of Reagan's mouth when he comes out of the you uh, are presidential luncheon is that the hostages have been um, released, really? getting all the goodwill that Carter worked so hard um, uh, to, to try to achieve. And in fact, the hostages were released um, as a result of the State Department negotiations with Tehran um, for 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 months on end. Now, so so, so Congress decides they're going to investigate whether it's true that there was this uh, secret deal to release the American hostages, and they form a, a a committee. And I'm the deputy majority counsel on that committee, and we spend a year looking into the question of whether or not we can prove that, in fact, Bill Casey and the Reagan campaign were in conversations with the Iranians about withholding um, the release of the American hostages. Our report concluded uh, that we couldn't find evidence of it. I don't think we said affirmatively it didn't happen. We said we can't find evidence of it. I think that's my recollection. We may have said we, we it didn't happen, but I think we said we couldn't find evidence of it. Now, you know, 40 years later, this Texas uh, politician, uh, businessman, has come forward uh, with Carter in hospice as the reason for why he's breaking his silence now, like Deep Throat is about to die. So he decided he's going to say, I'm Deep Throat. This guy comes forward and says, look, I was traveling around with John Connolly governor of Texas, um, John Connolly, shot in the motorcade with uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, right. And I can tell you that everywhere we went on this Middle Eastern trip, Connolly and I, Connolly was saying, get a message to Iran that if they don't release the hostages, Reagan will treat you um, better than you've been treated in the past under, under Carter. And he says that message was sent to all the Middle Eastern countries, and that those countries were instructed to let Tehran know of it, and that when they got back, Casey in, uh, uh, was informed of uh, the success of that um, effort. So 40 years plus since this occurs, this guy out of the blue comes out and says, oh, by the way, I knew all about this. And Peter Baker- Where has he been for 40 years? Well, Peter Baker, the terrific <laughs> reporter for the New York Times- um, <clears throat> reports reports what this guy said, and um, he's a serious guy. 
the, this this person who's making these allegations. So it's not yeah. like he's you know some fly by night. And so you have to take it seriously. So I, since the article was, um, since I was interviewed by Peter, and um, since the article has come out, I've spoken to most of the people on our team, and we've all said, where was this guy when this very public investigation was ongoing? And should that give us pause as to um, the accuracy of, of what he's saying? That said, well, John, course, should we be asking? Should we be asking Michael why didn't you subpoena him forty years ago? We didn't. We didn't know. We <laughs> yeah, didn't know of his existence. If we didn't. <laughs> we didn't know. We had subpoena power. If we knew of, if we knew of him, I or Connolly, we absolutely would have subpoenaed <laughs> them. Uh, and, and but the thing that was most telling in the Peter Baker article was, um, long after our investigation, Robert Parry, a journalist, a good journalist, um, finds a memo. That says, oh, by the way, Bill Casey was in Madrid, which is one of the key allegations that, are in, that we had to investigate. Was he in Madrid and were there secret meetings? Um, we asked the State Department, we asked the NSA, we asked the uh, intelligence community, is there any record of this? And they said no. 20 years later, they pull up this cable that says, oh, by the way, um, Bill Casey was in Madrid. So maybe this thing, uh, maybe this thing did occur and and the, the forces of government in in 1991 or two when we were investigating this um hid this from us and oh, maybe well, john connolly maybe john connolly uh, who was still alive at the time i believe um hid this from us and maybe this guy hid this from us and so our investigation was spoiled by the acts of, of badly motivated people who now uh, you know because jimmy carter is in hospice and they want to make him you know happy uh, on on his deathbed. That, oh, by the way, you lost because your your campaign was sabotaged. You know, it's a pretty cruel thing to do. I don't see how that. There's a nice way him. to send somebody off into the afterlife. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> yeah, you lie on your deathbed and says, oh, by the way, you, got you screwed, lost the pal. presidency because of you know potential criminal activity by the Reagan um, campaign or 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 its surrogates. I'm not gonna say, oh, great, I can go to my maker now with a smile <laughs> on my face. So I don't quite get the motive there, but that's well, that's, that's I, well, the bottom line of it. This guy has come forward to say that this that the October surprise was was true. We didn't, as I said, we didn't find evidence of it. But well, John, wait a minute. Let me let me question, roll John in here for this. No, because... just say, it just raises the question of whether we were lied to by the government, as you said, now, Brian. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm I'm John, I'm shocked, shocked. Yeah. Right? John, aren't you shocked that the government would lie to us? Oh yeah, just just shocked. Just I uh, can't believe it. That never happens. Gambling, <laughs> gambling in in Rick's place. Yeah, <laughs> you know, as I just listening to to Michael tell the story, it's fascinating. But you know, I, I I'm thinking about Carter's career, his political career, especially well, not so much as governor, but once he became president. I wrote. Um, this is one of the darker things. I'll pull the curtain back for a second. It's one of the grimmer things that we have to do in this business. Uh, I years ago prepared uh, CQ Roll Call's uh, Jimmy Carter obituary and my colleagues and I have been the last few weeks, you know, updating it as needed and right. maybe what we call a write through and, and added uh, some new substance to it uh, when he entered hospice care. And I can tell you that that's vintage Carter. I, the guy couldn't catch a break. And even when a break might've been in front of him as president, he just tripped right over it. And he and his team weren't really prepared for the presidency 
and just I remember cardigan the, sweaters. That's what I remember. Yeah. So it, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't surprise me um, that you know they didn't know about this or that there were you know folks on the NSC or or elsewhere in the government um, who who might have been involved in uh, you know helping him not win re-election. That doesn't surprise me at all. Having gone back through um, his term as president and, and updating the obituary, it's it's just brutal. It's the his the resume. If you want to look at his presidential resume, it's just brutal. And this is just another. Yeah, like it. It's just it's just kicking a guy while he's literally down. I mean, yeah. he's on his deathbed, and it's just it's just incredible. But it's almost a fitting punctuation on his presidency. What I, I find, though, is, Brian, what I find about it. Wait a minute. What I find yeah. about it is that particular crime and i can't describe another word for it i can't figure another word for it that crime against the american people yeah help set the table for the crap that we've had to endure for the last 40 years which includes donald trump in that one action that one criminal action set into motion events hmm. that have led to what we have now today in our government and for that, I there is an, a depth in hell deep enough to plunge those people into, especially those who kept silent all these years about that crime. Ronald Reagan set the table for everything that came afterwards. He helped destroy he his supply side economics has destroyed savings, organized labor, health care. What he did with the press has helped to lead to the consolidation of the media into six large companies there isn't one bad thing in the u.s that hasn't occurred in the last 40 years because of ronald reagan and that action helped do it and so i think that guy should be condemned to the deepest depths of hell now with that said we're gonna move on to can i just say can i just add one thing to you, you want the last word again okay go for it <laughs> no i'm just hoping john that you're obituary of uh, Jimmy Carter says greatest ex-president in modern um, history, because what he did yes. upon leaving the presidency compared to everybody else yeah. um, is an example of what a, a, a public servant acting in the public interest should do rather than make speeches been for, compared to Cincinnati. Well, you know, most ex-presidents become very, very wealthy, um, making speeches mm -hmm. to all sorts of organizations, domestic and um, foreign. And foreign. And Carter did not do that. I mean, George W. Bush is, is you know, an example of a person who's doing well as an ex-president, not completely capitalizing on it. He's done some. But Carter, with his Habitat for Humanity and right. all of his... Uh, um, uh, Faith-based uh, public service initiatives deserves a special well mention. He a, yeah, he was a true Christian too. I mean, for those who claim to be Christian, he was a guy that would not join the John Birch Society. He was the one that wouldn't join the Society Against uh, Black Farmers. He was called a quote in lover because he would not do what the Southern uh, and and he was threatened with uh, he was threatened with we're not going to buy your peanuts if you back black people. And he said he didn't care. And he famously said that his 
faith told him to do whatever he could for everyone that he could for as long as he could with whatever he could. And that and, and he was a lover of good rock and roll. Music. Oh yes. And, and 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 a fan of Willie Nelson's and put solar paneling on the White House and Reagan took it down. So <laughs> with that being said, let's move on to bank bailouts and regulations. <laughs> and oh, good. Gonna, more more fun uplifting talk. More fun uplifting talk. Think about that and we'll be we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Here we are. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. It's a super silly Sunday with all the fun and frivolity that March Madness provides including the number one team being knocked off and Kansas going, well, we'll get to that in a minute, and your letters. But right now, quickly, let's go through the bank bailouts and the regulation problems. Um, have, had they not rolled back Dodd-Frank, I don't think we'd be talking about this. In 2008, after the last banking crisis, it was Elizabeth Warren who said, uh, we're not doing this right, and there's going to be another uh, problem, and, and here we have one. And so, John... I'll, I'll start with you. The bailout this week and the potential bailout, I don't think we've, not only do I not think we've covered this adequately in the press, I don't think we have a handle on what the problem is. Your thoughts? Probably not. Um, this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is one of those issues that, um, you know, you lose expertise in newsrooms through layoffs and, and, exactly. and what have you. And there's just, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, um, you know, really good financial journalists uh, out there. Right With the exception now. of uh, uh, our friend from MS uh, CNBC, Mr. Jabbers, Eamon Jabbers, of course, yeah. he's uh, their chief, I believe, Washington uh, correspondent now. Eamon yeah. does great work, but there's not like, you know, when, for instance, I wrote about this in C in my newsletter CQ afternoon briefing this week, and. I don't have that depth. So I'm I'm speaking of myself right now, but you have to cover it. You have to ask when I'm on the Hill, I have to ask lawmakers, you know, what uh, what they might be able to do in, 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 in or if they feel uh, a need right now. And as of late last week, they didn't. Uh, the senators I talked to didn't feel the need to act legislatively. So there's just not a lot of depth here. You know, this isn't I think we've all become. Ukraine experts or, uh, you know, what have healthcare experts over the years, but this one pops up once a decade. It's one of those issues, it seems like, uh, and we just don't have a lot of depth in it. And now, if you're making newsroom decisions, because it doesn't come up all the time, you're not going to put resources and by resources, you know what I mean? I mean, people, people. you're not going to, yeah, people, your most expensive uh, expenditure, and you're not, you're not going to put a lot of people in it. So there are a lot of reasons. And if you, you could probably, 
I know a guy who could probably draw a line back to Ronald Reagan with media consolidation, that this <laughs> is another product of that because we're, you know, corporate ownership, eh, probably not going to put a lot into financial reporting when, when I could get clicks um, other ways. Well, I'll, I'll say this and then Michael, I'll, I'll let you jump in, but here's my take on it from having covered this for a, these issues for a while. When the multi national banks and the largest banks were threatened with failure. They were too big to fail and we bailed them out. This is a regional bank that failed and the multis are, are bailing them out. To me, it just looks like they're <laughs> a forced merger <laughs> that we are losing smaller and regional banks the same as we have lost smaller and regional reporting, smaller regional businesses. So to me, it looks again like, uh, yes, it is the consolidation of the banking industry. And, you know, I, I remember years ago, I had a regional bank, Chevy Chase. It got bought out. I was with them for 20 some odd years and it became part of Citibank. And I could not stand the service. The service went away. They were not. So I chose a regional bank to, to go to just because I liked dealing with human beings better than calling up on the phone and getting it out, you know, my, my request outsourced to a, a phone bank in India. But that's just me. Michael, I'll let you jump in. So as you know, whenever you ask me a question, I say, well, let's go back in time yes. before yeah. we answer the, the question so that we understand. We're we going back to 2008? We're going way back, ah. way, way further back uh, than that. It used to be that there was a, uh, a law on the books called the Glass-Steagall. Yes, let's go back to Glass-Steagall. So the Glass-Steagall Act did not allow banks to also be investment companies and insurance companies. You couldn't consolidate. They had a, there was um, non-porous walls among those various types of, of institutions. And that was passed in 1933 uh, you know, in response to what was um, believed to be predatory behavior on um, financial the part of financial institutions. So that's the law. The banks have been had been complaining about it from the day it was passed, and they they get to 1999, and what is proposed by Senator Phil Graham of Texas, I think chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, and uh, you know a, a recipient of banking funds, and Jim Leach, a moderate from Iowa, and Tom Bliley, a Republican. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999 repeals Glass-Steagall, and it allows for the types of consolidation that Glass-Steagall prohibited. At the time of the debate, uh, John Dingell, a Democrat from uh, Michigan, argued against it, saying what this would do, his words, would create banks that are too big to fail, and would necessarily result in a bailout by the far by the federal government. Um, it it passed, um, and Clinton signed it into law. And ever since, in my view, ever since the passage of the uh, Graham Leach Bliley Act, we encounter every period of time what Dingle predicted, which was too big to fail banks and federal bailouts. And so the question is. Is it time to revisit the Glass. prohibitions that Glass-Steagall provided for? Yes. Now, it's not the way the modern economy works. 
We're not a savings and loan sort of banking-based community. So maybe it's not Glass-Steagall that comes back, but maybe the consolidations that uh, Graham Leach Bliley allowed for have to be rolled back so that we have banks that are accountable in ways that under the current law, they are not. Well, yeah, and Glass-Steagall also helped form the the FDIC, which insured the deposits to a certain amount. And now banks being so large, they're much larger than the insured amount that the government will guarantee that they'll refund. So that becomes part of the problem, I believe, and why you need to revisit the act to break up the banking industry. But that's just- Well, but I mean, I think the the, the conversation to, to that exact point is, is the cap too low? Way too low. Uh, because, you know, yes, it's a lot of money. I think what it is, is like quarter of a million dollars quarter of a million is, bucks. Is, yeah. is, is the cap. But, you know, if you if you have a, a large, uh, you know, uh, 401k or other things that's are, that are in banking institutions over the course of your lifetime, and you get to be retirement age, uh, you may well have um, that amount of money or more. Or if you're bank. a business and you've invested in a and put your money in a bank, you're going to have more than that. And uh, so I think I think fundamentally, Graham Leach Bliley needs to be rethought. But I think until and unless that that's done, they really have to think about uh, raising the the insured limit for depositors, not for um, bank owners. Or right. Private other, depositors. Yeah. Private that's, sector yeah. depositors. Yeah. And I All think right. Biden has it right. In this case, we're, we're saying that the, the federal government will ensure uh, the deposits of individual depositors, but it's not about to um, give safe haven to the the bank board and the bank executives. And he wants he'll claw back, if he can, any bonuses that they got or prevent additional yeah, bonuses. Yeah, I love how they all got bonuses right before they went under. Just yeah. got to love that. That's it's a, it, a Brian, it's it's just a coincidence. Yeah, it's right. nothing to do with reality. No. <laughs> we do the you know we do these things when we do these things. Yeah, John, I'll give you the last word on it. Yeah, on the cap. It. Interesting that, that Michael brings up raising the cap. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, very progressive, um, very big bank critic, financial sector critic. Um, over the years, a Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, a word I can't say, and uh, she was. <laughs> She was on uh, the Sunday show, one of the Sunday shows this morning, and she is calling for raising the cap. She didn't get into, you know, specific limits. Uh, the White House not ruling that out yet. And for the first time this morning, uh, Patrick McHenry, who is one of the more serious House Republicans, he's chairman of the Financial Services right. Committee. He's one to watch. He's a potential future speaker down the road. He's respected across that caucus. He's talking to the White he's House. Respected he's on both sides of the aisle. Yes, absolutely. He's talking to he's talking to everybody. He's involved here. He didn't rule out raising the caps this morning. So this is starting, it feels like, to gain some momentum. Uh, and again, they're not doing very much else legislatively right now. So if if this catches fire and Biden gets on board and 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 everybody's comfortable with it, you know, we could start to see hearings and and, you know, maybe they pass something on this this year. They certainly have the floor time. Well, wait yeah. a second, though. There's there, there, you've got to for, before you can deal with a financial crisis, you've got to deal with uh, Bo Biden's wife's benefiting from 
illegal uh, finances and Hunter Biden and and maybe uh, uh, his next door neighbor. I mean, that has to take priority over over this, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is this is an occasion uh, when a lawmaker might tell you, uh, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> which lawmaker? Which lawmaker? Um, and and did, and did they have a video? Yeah, right. right. I, I'll close it with this before we move on to the serious problems of March Madness. And that is, and, and letters, um, the Glass-Steagall Act came about at, because of the Depression. And mm -hmm. it was to ensure that we would not have a, a resurgence or a reappearance or, or, you know, a rerun of that particular horrible part of our, our, our you know, that economic collapse removing the glass steagall and and in the last few years has weakened our system and opened us up to put to a to the type of of economic woes that we've seen over the last 20 years so i will just say the glass steagall should be revisited it should and it should be and and these large banks need to be broken up or we're just going to be screwed we're we're part of a a technological feudalism unless that it's made more democratic. That's my final thought. Now, uh, quickly uh, from letters, uh, I, I do have from a, a guy, John, John Lyon from Arkansas, who wants to know from Michael, uh, uh, Michael, do you think that Donald Trump will ever, and I, we've covered this many times, I'll give you, you know, 30 seconds to, you know, to go over it because I guess they don't get it. But do you and sorry, John, I'm not lying. I'm not I'm, I'm not coming after you personally. But do you think that Donald Trump will ever see the inside of a prison cell? Not unless there is a case that can be made on the January 6th side of the uh, ledger. I think the other cases, as serious as they are, will not result in incarceration if Trump were convicted of those crimes. There you go. And, and John, for you, this one comes from a guy named Steve Shetler, who wants to know, I, I got names this week instead of anonymous, uh, instead of, you know, weird moniker. So I'm very happy for that <laughs> instead of weird handles. But this guy wants to know if you think there's any hope that uh, Congress can work in a bipartisan manner in the next two years for the benefit of the U.S. instead of the benefit of either party. Oh, um, how to answer that one? It's the same answer uh, that that I've given before here and elsewhere. You know, there are five things that that I'm watching for them to do this year, and then uh, one uh, probably next year. I'm not ready to add some kind of financial reform to that yet, but um, check back next week. You know, I think I think spending bills in September probably punt them a little longer than that. So avoiding a government shutdown. Uh, addressing the debt ceiling, um, that could be that could be as easy as suspending it for a little while. Um, a farm bill, that's the one that I think takes the whole Congress to do. So th they're they're working on it now. Uh, that's going to take forever. Uh, now that benefits both parties. That's one where everyone has an incentive to come to the table and do it seriously. Um, that touches so much of the economy. So farm bill, spending bills. Uh, avoiding government shutdowns, defense policy uh, bill—they do that every year—and you know, 
I don't they they may be able to get together on some kind of China, another China bill, technology bill, semiconductors, that kind of thing. But other than that, um, I wouldn't look for this to be a bipartisan Congress at all. The, the incentives just aren't there. Um, Republicans, the Senate map is, is so it's so red already um, that it looks like, you know, they're already thinking to their majority. So the incentives just aren't there. But if they again, if they do those five things and maybe you add on something like fi uh, a financial reform bill, then, like I said last week, I think you have to give this Congress a B, even even with these House investigations, which haven't produced a lot of evidence. They haven't connected any dots. They just throw dots on the whiteboard and don't connect anything. But other than that, you know, if, if the debt ceiling, if we don't default, if the government doesn't shut down, if they do a meaningful farm bill, and it usually is, and and a couple other things, you know, that that would be more than than a lot of the forecasters uh, predicted back in January. And for me, it's from Packers fan 59 who wants to know, <laughs> am I? No, I am not an Aaron Rodgers fan. I am a Green Bay Packer fan, a Bart Starr fan. Hey, I, he can go anywhere he wants. I'll be happy to see him leave Green Bay. The serious part of your question asked of me is uh, why why do reporters always, they want a two-part question. And the second part was, why do reporters always seem to go against those in power? And I will tell you this, that's our job, to ask questions. It's their job to put their best foot forward. It's our job to hold them accountable for what they do, whether they are Republican, Democrat, middle of the road, far right, far left, I don't care. I am not a fan of any politician. I agree with H.L. Mencken. The only way to look at a politician is down. And then with that said, final thoughts. Oh, uh, Michael's got his hand up. Go ahead, Michael. Just I wanted to uh, amend my answer on, ah, okay. on the question of whether Trump would ever see the inside of a jail. What I said, what I tried to say, but didn't say it clearly, is that the only conviction that would be worthy of jail time ah. is a January 6th conviction. However, I would expect Democrat or Republican president at the time of that conviction and sentencing, potential sentencing, would have to think very seriously about pardoning. Um, or commuting the sentence. Or commuting uh, a la um, what Ford did uh, With to Nixon. Nixon. To because long it may be nightmare. It may be in the best interest of the country uh, for whatever president it is, Republican or Democrat, to to do just that. Yeah, and I don't think we'll ever see the inside of a cell. I think the actuary tables are a bad hamburger. We'll get him before then. But we'll close with everybody's uh, March Madness uh, <laughs> has been, all of those have been busted. Everybody's uh, lost out there. So <laughs> including including Barack Obama's uh, brackets, they're all busted. So I'll start with Michael. Who do you like in, 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 that's left? Well, I can tell you that my bracket ah. still has, I think, I have to check it, but I'm pretty sure my bracket still has an um, Alabama-Houston final. Mm. Wow. And, and and I think they're still both, both in it. And I could be mistaken. I might have Purdue there, who obviously are not going to make it. <laughs> um, I have Houston winning the national championship, but I think that's the – easy that That's was the easy the, yeah. money bet at the outset um john how about you 
I got out of the bracket business a few years ago. <laughs> I got tired of being frustrated by Thursday evening and wasting, you know, 10 bucks or whatever the buy-in would be. <laughs> and now I just sit back and I just watch the hoops, man. And I just, you have it on maybe two screens or just flipping back between games. And I don't have to worry about who do I have in this game or my champions down by six and well, who cares? Right. I just, I just want to see buzzer beaters and and defensive stops and 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 see the crowd go crazy. It's just it's a great spectacle. I will say this: what I'm as as we're recording, Xavier just uh, eliminated uh, Pittsburgh. So the ACC, the conference of my youth, the athletic the the Atlantic Coast Conference, uh, has one team left. This great former basketball conference only has the Miami Hurricanes who yes, have an outside Duke shot. Of yeah, Duke's out. Yeah, Carolina and I got a <laughs> UNC UNC didn't even make the tournament. So this once great basketball power conference is a shell of its former self. Yeah. And all of this, we've seen Kansas is out, Purdue's out, Duke's out, all these upsets. This is this is the is difference. Kentucky's still in it? I think they are, right? They I'm not sure, there. but but this is what we're seeing. This is the transfer portal. This this has changed college basketball. What it does in foot in college football in in FBS Division One college football, it makes the strongest stronger. It makes Georgia stronger. It makes you know those those but in basketball makes them weaker. But in yes, it makes them weaker. Kids want to play, and there are more kids who can play uh, basketball. And they're willing to go play at at Wichita State or Xavier or or school, you know, the Paraiso or yeah, they, they'll because they they'll play thirty five minutes a game. Whereas if they stay at Alabama, they might play five. Yeah, and and those kids, as they say, those kids can hoop. Yeah, and that's they, what we're seeing. That's well, what we're seeing. I'll, I'm an A B D man and always have been. Anybody but Duke. So when they lose, I cheer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very happy that they're gone. Um, Kentucky is where I grew up. Missouri is where I went to school and Louisville is the city I grew up in. So I've always been a Louisville fan. They never went anywhere this year. I, I think Kentucky's still in it. I kind of cheering for them to lose and my, my alma mater Mizzou lost. So I don't really care. <laughs> Just, oh no, but, but Brian, you have to, you have to root for Princeton. Yeah. <laughs> right. The number fifteen, the number fifteen seed. Yes. Going to the going to the Sweet Sixteen. You gotta it, you gotta be you know you gotta root with your heart here. Yeah. Kentucky well, I always root for the underdog. After my yeah. guys are out, I was rooting for Louisville to make it with just four wins this year, and somehow they didn't they didn't win their tournament. So that ha, as long as as long as Duke is down, I'm happy. So <laughs> well, Fairleigh Dickinson could be your could could that's be a it. Player, I'm a Fairleigh right? Dickinson fan now. Yeah. <laughs> so with that said, thanks everybody once again. This is just ask the question. I am your host Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us, and we will well hopefully we'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot.